Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 601st edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Daniel Feuerstein. I'll give you an American perspective of our clubs, leagues, players, national team, and other fabulous moments. Get your daily reading from me and other writers over at Beyond the 90 at beyondthe90.substack.com or redbullnewsnetwork.com. But as always, this show is dedicated to the game in American soccer. Chat room is open. Come on in. Discuss amongst yourselves if you like. You have a question for me. I'll try to answer it to the best of my abilities. You know, I will admit that the situation that has been going on in in New England with the revolution is not pretty. It's not spectacular. And it's just downright awful. Once again, last week, Wednesday, I had on Sam Minton from The Blazing Musket to discuss this entire sham and stupidity because, once again, we do not have any clear answers of what happened between Bruce Arena, Richie Williams' club itself. And... If you go to beyondthe90.substack.com, you will see my latest article uh, on that website with Carter Krishnire and Jonathan Starling of why I am saying that the end of the Bruce Arena era is sad. Because it is. Because it's terrible. Now, listen. I don't know what was said. Nobody knows what was said. Only club president Brian Bellello, interim sporting director Kurt Anolfo, commissioner of Major League Soccer Don Garber, and the investigation team that was conducting it, and Bruce. But, you know, I understand Bruce Arena. You know, he's 71 years old. You know, maybe he's getting to the point where maybe he's getting more frustrated than normal. Maybe he's getting more annoyed than normal. Maybe he's felt maybe he's had enough. I don't know. We'll never know. The way that this has been handled has been a complete mockery. And on that late Saturday night on social media, where he gives out a statement for Serena saying he's stepping down from both sporting director and head coaching positions. I'm sorry. That's just terrible. And on a Saturday night at 1030 Eastern time, causing more confusion, more headaches, no matter how many Zoom calls, no matter how many press conferences through Zoom you're going to have, 
everything has been a sham. And the most surprising thing out of this whole situation is from Richie Williams. This man not only played for Bruce Arena at the University of Virginia in college soccer, DC United was his assistant coach at the New York Red Bulls at the New England Revolution. I don't know if he was with him at the LA Galaxy. I don't think so. When you have a complaint against Bruce Arena, which it still boggles my mind that Richie, out of all the people that have been under Arena's tutelage, not just as a player, but as a member of his coaching staff, what the hell is going on? And if all the things that Richie Williams has done is not true, well, then somebody should come out and say so. Richie Williams should come out and say so. Because at the moment, all we have is he is the one that filed a complaint against Bruce Arena. What was in that complaint? We don't know. They're not telling us. No one's saying a word. And now, PA, who was the Revolution 2 head coach, is now taking over on the interim basis. Now, good luck to Clint. Hopefully, Clint will do well. But once again, what in the hell is going on in Foxborough? Why are we not getting anything? The New England media is not getting anything. The Boston media is not getting anything. The national soccer media is not getting anything. This is the most strangest situations I have ever seen in my entire life. And yes, I am a Bruce Arena fan. No, it did not start when he was at DC United. But truthfully, I respected what he did at DC United. I was respecting him for the great moments he gave the U.S. men's national team. And that's why I was happy at that time he came to the New York Rebels to be the head coach, even though he got sacked after a season and a, and a quarter by Mark de Grand Prix, which in reality he should never have sacked him in the first place because that's a man not being used to being a general manager in the sports world business. Because the truth is, the general manager in soccer is not what it is in the regular four sports in this country. That's why you have the sporting director. That's why you have the director of sport. That's why you have people who have sporting in their title. Because they are the ones that watches the academy kids. That they are the ones that watches the free agency period to bring in certain players, the transfer windows. And Mark the Grand Prix did a dumb thing. And once again, there was the LA Galaxy who benefited bringing over Bruce Arena after his short stint with the Red Bulls. And him going to the New England Revolution after unfortunately being a part of the debacle of the 2018 non-qualification to the FIFA World Cup. Look, this man has my respect. He is a soccer Hall of Famer. He has his red jacket. 
everything that he has done, he has earned. And unfortunately, he has been forced out. Even though he has stepped down on his own, he's been forced out. For what reasons, we don't know. And we will never know unless somebody comes clean and steps up to the microphone and says, this is what really happened. I'm sorry, Kurt Anolfo. Going to accept your terms of let's just move on from the baloney because we're not going to do that. What has transpired at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts is an absolute disgrace. And until we get real answers about this situation with Bruce Arena, there is still going to be questions about why did he get sacked or why was he forced to step down or why did he step down on his own? Continued rumors and innuendos on social media still going on, whether we like it or not. It's a sad day. It's a very sad day. If we cannot honor this man for the great things he has done for the game in this country, what can we do? Ridicule him? Does he deserve it? Look, I'll be honest. His, his weakness, sadly, is his arrogance. I know Bruce Arena is a confident person. I know that he's a smart man. He's a player's coach. He puts his players in proper positions to win the game. He has done everything the right way. But unfortunately, at times, his arrogance gets the best of him. And let's not forget what happened before the final match in the final round of qualifying for 2018 in Trinidad, where he had to say for no reason... I'd like to see the top teams in Europe try to come and qualify into the World Cup here in CONCACAF. That was the wrong thing to do, and he should never have gone there. He should never have gone there. And even though our players at that time were not being good and honest with us, they were being themselves, assuming they can go and do a cakewalk, they paid the ultimate price. They did. And that's why this program moved on to the younger generation, the current generation of players that we have right now. It was bound to happen someday, sooner or later. But that moment fast-tracked it. You know, when Jurgen Klinsmann was not doing the job anymore and they were not getting the results they were getting and Bruce Arena came back into the fray and had that six goals to nil victory over Honduras at PayPal Stadium in San Jose. To me, I thought it signaled we're back. I thought it signaled we are back on track to go to the World Cup. And unfortunately, it stalled. Poor results at home and away, assuming the job was done when the job was not done. 
That is the only argument and the only negative I have about Bruce Arena, his arrogance. But once again, I don't know what happened. I would love if both Robert Kraft and his son Jonathan would come up to the podium and talk to us and tell us what the hell happened. But until we get that, until we get that, we're all still going to speculate. And it's just wrong. But unfortunately, this is the nature of social media. This is the nature of what you, we are doing with how we get our information in this modern era of electronics and how we get fed our news. I use it. You use it. Everyone uses it positively or negatively. But the truth of the matter is this. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Major League Soccer has done nothing to quash anything negative being said. This situation with Bruce Arena, the only thing they've said was he's going to have to find a way to get Don Garber's permission to come back into MLS to be a head coach again. Why? 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 Does that have to happen? We'll never know. We don't know what the words were. We don't know who they were aimed at. We don't know which players are the ones that complained. But I'm telling you right now, folks, it's really gotten to the point where it is just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. That Bruce Arena has been treated like this. And I only hope, I only hope that this man will be honored the proper way as we move on from the Bruce Arena era as it ends on a sour note. Great show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, right now, I am joined by my Colorado Rapids reporter, Patrick Quinn, talking about the situation with the Rapids and, of course, the sacking of their head coach and Robin Frazier about a couple of weeks ago. Quinny, welcome back. It's been a while. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I hope everything's good with you. You know, Robin Frazier... I think we can both agree he's been a very solid head coach in Major League Soccer, especially for the Rapids. Obviously, there have been times where results have not gone the Rapids' way, obviously. Injuries have also been a major concern for the Rapids. But why was he relieved of his duties by the president of the club? I mean, I think, well, the real reason he was let go was, I mean, it got to a point where I think he just lost the locker room. And, you know, once you once you get to that point, you can't really unring that bell no matter, you know, who the coach is. But, I mean, in the bigger picture, I mean, he clearly wasn't the real problem with why the team is so dysfunctional and why the results have been so poor. No, I agree with you there. Absolutely, that's that's absolutely true. I think he, you know, 
I mean, I remember him uh, being a great player for the LA Galaxy. I remember him as the assistant coach to Mike Petke here at the New York Red Bulls. And then, of course, he moved on being an assistant coach at Toronto FC. And then he took the job with the Rapids, and he's done some amazing things with the club. Who do you think really benefited from Robin Frazier's tactics? Uh, you mean player-wise or player wise. You know, just kind of – I mean, player-wise, I think – you know, he kind of early in his uh, tenure with the Rapids was kind of known for sort of resurrecting, you know, distressed assets and like getting their career back on track. I mean, the poster boy of that is Kellen Acosta, who was, you know, kind of on the outside looking in. He wasn't, you know, getting minutes with, you know, the U.S. national team or anything like that. But then he came here, he was getting minutes, he was performing really well and, you know, now he's been a much more regular fixture in that mix. I mean, obviously not quite starter quality, but, you know, comes off the bench, you know, kind of wildly veteran, has kind of those good instincts, particularly in a CONCACAF environment. But uh, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, him being willing to kind of work with guys like that. I think part of the problem where things went off the rails was, you know, just the quality of the players that get brought in even though they're distressed assets, some of them weren't necessarily distressed assets. They just weren't very good players. And unfortunately, that's the case. What else do you think uh, was also a benefit? Who else was a- also a benefit uh, when Robin Frazier was the head coach of the club? Uh, I think, you know, some of our academy players uh, were benefited quite a bit. I mean, Cole Bassett and Zam Fines are a good example of that. Uh, both of them went to Europe. Uh, Vines is still, you know, for Royal Antwerp, though, you know, due to some sort of kerfuffle with paperwork, he wasn't able to play yeah. in the Champions League this year. But And then Cole Bassett was at Feyenoord, but, you know, their coach was, you know, dismissed very shortly after him arriving. So then he was kind of in limbo and floated around and just – kind of didn't work out for him and ended up back here. But I think later in Fraser's tenure, there was less of that reliance on the youth talent. And, you know, it, some of that's sort of a mystery from the outside looking in and not being able to, you know, be the fly on the wall in the organization. But it seemed like veteran players were leaned on a lot heavier, particularly when the results weren't going particularly well. But, I do think, particularly early in his tenure, a lot of the younger guys were looking really good. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you there. Do you feel Do you feel that now uh, the president of the club, uh, he strayed away in some ways what the message probably should have been or what could have been? Or do you feel it's just starting to dry up a little bit? I think the club president, I mean, Porek Smith, we'll just call him by his name, but I think he is profoundly unqualified for his job. I think he is completely over his head. He has no clue what he's doing, and under no circumstances should he be in charge of a third coaching hire. I mean, this is the same guy that also hired Anthony Hudson, who is one of the worst coaches in MLS history. But, you know, he's still in his position right now. He's you know, ownership has his back and, you know, a lot of fans were pretty upset after the, uh, you know, his media exposure after uh, Frazier was let go. But, 
you know, all he had to say was something like, you know, we appreciate what the coach has done for us, but we decided to go in a diff- different direction, you know, something to that extent. But that's not really what happened. He basically drove the truck over him and then backed up the truck three or four times, just basically blamed everything that went wrong with the club over the last, you know, three or four years on him and took no responsibility for his ineptitude at, you know, being able to identify talent. He can't scout for, you know, to save his life. Uh, You know, I think there's some serious questions about the medical staff and the training staff he has. I mean, it's just, even with the limited resources he gets from the Cronkies, it's still a substandard job. Let me ask you this, because obviously there's recent uh, problems right now, obviously with the supporters. I know you are definitely one of them. The C-38 statement about how Robin Frazier was handled, uh, as you very said, uh, the president and uh, Mr. Padrag Smith, how he worded the issues. And they're talking about now, of course, the situation with how Dick Sporting Goods Park has been neglected, uh, no opportunities to revamp the stadium, uh, the fields, the training fields around the stadium, just the whole area is just not been uh, refurbished or updated. And do you feel that the club has neglected everything, including the supporters? And do you feel that... Who who can step in and take over this uh, Colorado Rapids side as new manager or new owner? So I actually did help pen that statement from C38 that was published last oh, week. Oh, I, I knew it helped, was your handiwork. I helped organize the walkout that happened that was, you know, very visible on TV, and there were pictures of it on social media all weekend. But I definitely had a hand in that. But, yeah, the the club as a whole has been neglected. I can't think of a single thing that club does well compared to their other peers around Major League Soccer. I mean, they're completely left behind in basically every category. And, yeah, the training facilities are substandard. We don't even have, like, an indoor, you know, like a temporary bubble during the winter to practice in. Uh, we don't really have any quality turf fields to practice on. And, you know, they've only replaced the field now for the first time since they opened the stadium, and that has actually caused injuries. That's why Jack Price got hurt earlier this year. And, I mean, just, yeah, the stadium in general, I I don't know how it, many stadiums you or any of the listeners out there have been to, but, you know, it compares very unfavorably even to other dated you know, MLS stadiums, like, you know, you look at Dow- where the Galaxy play or where SC Dallas play, but those are from a similar era, but those have received, you know, fairly reasonable upgrades over the years. And I mean, changes to the stands and stuff like that. The Sporting Goods Park is largely unchanged and it's kind of been left to rot, basically. I mean, the signage at the stadium is faded and falling apart. Scoreboard doesn't work. I mean, that's been pointed out ad nauseum and it just it doesn't feel like a professional sports stadium it feels like you know an average high school stadium and that's the shame of it isn't it because i'll tell you when when the day that stadium opened in commerce city i raved about it i loved it i i enjoy it when the players 
are walking out of that building, uh, that's where would that be? The north end of the building? Yes. When the, when the players are walking out of the locker rooms or the clubhouse and they're walking down the stairs to the field and getting ready to play, that was, in my mind, the best entrance in any soccer stadium I've ever watched or have ever been to. Don't get me wrong, I love being at Red Bull Arena, but still, though, to me, that was a high-quality entrance that Dick Sporting Goods Park had when it got started. And even though I, I know the club came out with a statement saying um, they're trying to get there. Now you can correct, you can help me out with this victory sure. crossing project. For those of us not familiar with this, what is the victory crossing project? And is that either trying to upgrade Dick sporting goods park, or is that a new area in the Denver Colorado area to build a brand new entertainment slash stadium situation that what is going on at Gillette stadium in Foxborough mass. So a lot of that's just a smoke screen and it's just kind of PR baloney basically. Uh, so when the stadium first opened, there's the broader kind of development around where the stadium sits. It was originally called Prairie Gateway, and, you know, they wanted to kind of turn it into sort of a sports and, you know, entertainment complex with various, you know, venues and that sort of thing and restaurants. And uh, nothing really happened because when the stadium, you know, a year after the stadium opened, the uh, housing crisis of 2008 happened. And so the economy slowed down, and it was later rebranded as the Victory Crossing uh, development. And that was, how many years ago did they rebrand that? It's been at least a decade where it has been that. And the stuff around the Victory Crossing development, which is all located in the city and county of Denver, there's basically a square where the stadium sits in the immediate area is actually in Adams County, which is a county just north of Denver. All the stuff within Denver County itself has been developed now, like it's been built out with, you know, shopping districts and housing developments and stuff like that. Victory Crossing remains, you know, empty, empty lots with prairie dogs living in it. Prairie dogs that sometimes we get plague warnings on and the signs go up. That's been kind of a running joke out there. But yeah, a lot of that smokescreen and none of that's actually been stuff that's like new or earth shattering. I mean, you can even drive around the stadium to some of those vacant lots and there are victory crossing developments that are cracked and faded and can't even read them. I mean, it's uh, the whole thing is just complete and utter nonsense. There, there's no development coming. And the thing that also rang hollow about that is that they focused on that development. I mean, that's not what the fans care about. The fans don't care about, you know, breaking ground on a new TGI Fridays located a couple blocks away from the stadium. They want better training facilities. They want, you know, a stadium that has better concession stands. Isn't everything drab and gray is actually in the team colors, a modern scoreboard and, you know, good facilities that actually improve the game day experience. But, you know, all the Cronkies seem to care about is, you know, real estate developments. They don't care about the soccer team. And, you know, what the club needs is meaningful investments. And it either needs to come from the Cronkies, potentially by force. I don't, 
know how the rest of the owners in MLS feel that, you know, all of them are investing, you know, new funds in the league and Kroenke is clearly not. And he's just basically getting a free ride off of all their work and, you know, all their spending. And it's either by force or, you know, you identify a buyer that would be willing to take over the club and actually give the meaningful investment that is required to operate a professional soccer organization in Denver. Wow. That's crazy. Let me ask you this, Quinny. If if you and C38 would try to um, try to find a new owner in the Denver area who is a real supporter of this game, doesn't have to come from Denver. Could come from any of the neighboring states or any any city, any investment group, whatever have you. If you want to tell them, can you come here and get Kroenke to sell the Rapids to them so that they can take over? Would what would you say to those people? I mean, what we're really looking for, we're not looking to be Atlanta or Seattle. We're not looking to be a mega market. We want something that is, you know, just a decent market that is a little bit smaller but punches above its weight. I mean, Kansas City historically and Columbus are, you know, the kind of places that come to mind when you think of what the potential is for a place like Colorado. And, I mean, the reality is, I mean, you could offer a decent price for the Cronkies investment. I mean, I seem to remember – I'd have to look this up, but I think initially when he bought in the league in 2004, I think he to from Blanchu in the league and Forbes valued them at $350 million now. And, of course, the expansion fee is rumored to be $500 million for new teams to get into the league. So I think, you know, just be average. <laughs> it would be so nice if the Rapids were average compared to the rest of the league, but they have just lagged so far behind for so long. Just everybody's fed up with it. And it's at the point where I feel like the Denver market's being actively poisoned. I understand where you come from, Quinny. I'm very sorry to hear that. And hopefully somewhere down the road, uh, the Rapids can get new ownership and uh, things can change for the better over at Colorado. I mean, obviously, I mean, you do have an MLS Cup championship under your belt. That should be enough to say it's worth it to be a new owner of the Rapids and to love the sport in the Denver area as well as uh, in the Colorado entire state. Listen, Quinny, thanks again for joining me again as always. Um, Hope to have you on again uh, as quickly as possible, and uh, good luck with the rest of the season. Yeah, sure thing. Good luck for the Red Bulls for the rest of the season as well. Thank you. And that's uh, Patrick Quinn, my Colorado Rapids reporter, talking about the situation with the club. And unfortunately, it's just not going to get better. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here is my uh, recorded interview with Jason Longshore from 92.9 FM The Game, the Atlanta United radio analyst, as uh, he talks about the club in their current state. And here he is right now. 
Welcome back to the American Soccer Show. Daniel Feuerstein here with you once again. Joining me right now is the radio analyst of Atlanta United on 92.9 FM, the game in Atlanta, Georgia, the one and only Jason Longshore. Jason, welcome back to the show. Great to have you on, and how are you, sir? Thanks for having me on, as always. Doing good. How about you? I'm doing very well. Everything's going good at the moment. Let's talk about Atlanta United. Uh, currently in sixth in the Eastern Conference. Obviously, that is nowhere where Atlanta fans want to see this club located on the Eastern Conference table. But what do you say at the moment with how the club has been playing so far this year? It's been a roller coaster ride, and I said it on the post game show after the win over Miami on the weekend. It's really the third iteration of this roster in 2023 that Gonzalo Pineda's had to work with. And when you go back and look at the, the fluctuations in the standings, Atlanta's been six, seven, eight, pretty consistently fifth as well in the East, which is one spot more overall. You know, the Eastern Conference is so much more difficult than the Western Conference this season. And, yeah, that can be frustrating at times because you look at it and you're like, well, I want to be first. But with those fluctuations in the roster, the team started out really well, had some injuries, international call-ups, things like that, and you had this little bit of a dip. And I think the thing that's held this team back this season has been defensive mistakes. And the moves that have happened in Atlanta United 2023 2.0 that got you to what this one is, which is 3.0, you had to move some people out in the early portion of the summer window to create space to add pieces to make it better and create a higher ceiling for the team. And I think that Carlos Bocanegra and his staff have done that. When you look at – when you had to move on from Andrew Gutman and had to move on at least temporarily from Franco Ibarra loaning him to Toronto – And you had to shuffle the pieces around to make the team work while you were getting the additions that this team has added in. Dabo Lobjanitsa and Shandi Silva and Tristan Muyamba and now Jamal Thierry, who's who's finally into the mix and he'll be getting his fitness up. You have a higher ceiling of what this team can achieve. And I think before, as the team was currently constructed, they were too frail defensively. And, and here's the thing that I think, and, and we can dig into it a little bit more, I think it's not being talked about enough. Those names I mentioned outside of Muyamba, who's a, a two-way midfielder, they're attacking players. But what it did to improve the defensive side of the team is it allowed Gonzalo Pineda to get Brooks Lennon back to fullback on the right side, get Caleb Wiley back to left back, and the defense is more stable, along with the emergence of Luis Abram, who has gotten back to the form that he had at Villa Sarsfield. So the defense is better. Yeah, they conceded two to Miami, one's a Golasso, one's a penalty. The defense is in a better spot, which allows this team to play the way that they want to play while still building the chemistry with the new pieces. I like where this team can go, and I think we got a lot of good glimpses of that against Miami on Saturday. Mm, absolutely, and of course they got that big victory at home against Miami United without Lionel Messi. Of course, Messi having his uh, Argentine pizza pie uh, back home while watching his son playing at the Inter Miami Academy. But that's a different story for another time. Uh, but I have to ask you this: Obviously, they've been great at home at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They've made it a fortress, of course. What's their road? 
appearance been like so far? I know the last time I saw them at Red Bull Arena, they got blitzed 4-0. Has their road games been better recently, or is it still not that great? Yeah, absolutely better. You go to Seattle and you beat Seattle, and then you go to Dallas and should have gotten three points in that game. You don't. You end up getting a point out of it. It's been much better. And I think that Red Bulls game is honestly the one to me that it really nailed down that this team had to improve defensively or you were going to need to win games 5-4 in the playoffs to advance. And it just showed it. I thought you saw goals given up on mistakes, uh, the majority of them in that game. And that's what was the issue with this team that was holding them back is you get to a point where you feel like you have to score four or five goals a game to win games, that's exhausting. And the Red Bulls game was a prime example of it. I think you go out and you look at the game at Seattle versus the game at Red Bull Arena, and it looks like two completely different clubs. The Seattle game, they were composed, they were controlled, they controlled the game, they frustrated Seattle, they kept the possession really well, got the two-goal lead, and then saw it out and got the clean sheet. Defense does room to improve, of course. And you know, look at when you're when you're moving Lennon and Wiley, who are attack-minded fullbacks, back to those defensive positions, and asking some different things out of them. You're gonna have some still some flare-ups defensively, and you're gonna see some goals given up. But it makes the team better in the long run. And now you've got the rest of this regular season to continue to improve, continue to build chemistry, and. Be a team with that attack of Yorgo Chakamakis and Thiago Almada. Yorgo has 14 goals. Almada has 15 assists. We're only really starting to see the surface scratch when it comes to what Shande Silva can provide on the left side and Zaba Lobjanita on the right. And Edwin Mosquera has been really good as well since coming back from loan with Defensa Justicia in Argentina. So when you've got that attacking group that is still fighting their footing but producing, you're going to be in a good shape, in a good position to handle things on the road. Now, Wednesday's an interesting one at D.C. because D.C. has been outstanding defensively in their last three games. They haven't conceded a goal. I'm curious to see how that directness of D.C. matches up with the possession-based positional play of Atlanta United. If I can ask you this, I mean, obviously, when the Atlanta United got started with the Tata Martino era, Joseph Martinez, Miguel Almiron, Yamil Assad. I mean, you know, that was like, without a doubt, probably the most dangerous side that Atlanta United's ever had when they first got started as a franchise or as a club. Do you feel now that with this version of Atlanta United, maybe they finally graduated from going 1.0 to 2.0? Yeah, it's more multifaceted. And and that's the thing. And I think what it highlights, and look, it's easy to forget it at times, although there's a lot of examples of this in league history, it's hard to build a team that stays together for five, six, seven years and continues at the same level. Seattle's kind of showing you right now with a group that has been together for a long time. Toronto had already showed you this. You know, if you get a window – You've got to maximize it. And I think those first three years, Atlanta created a really good window for themselves. And it would have been open longer if you don't have the knee injury to Joseph Martinez to open the 2020 season. That changed the window for Atlanta United. He's not the same player that he was. And I think maybe finally he's closer, but he's not ever going to be what he was. And it's a shame. 
But those first three years, you won a league title, you won an Open Cup title, you won a Campeones Cup. That's a pretty good window. And since then, it's taken some time to get it back to where you want it to get players that have been good, not great, have kind of come and gone. And now you're at a point where you have a striker who's among the league leaders in goals again, and you have a playmaker that you've never had. The the type of number 10 that Thiago Almada is, uh, he's different. I mean, Miguel Almiron, completely different kind of player. Yeah, they, they played the same position roughly and wore the same number, but they're so different in the way that they play. Almada is an old-school, classic kind of 10 who can get some goals for himself as well, especially from the set pieces. It's, it's different, but it's closer to what it was back then. It's hard. It's really hard in this league. And when you have limitations on how much you can spend and you make a signing that works kind of but doesn't kill it, especially in those big money signings, it can be a challenge, and that's what we've seen with this team. And it's not easy to correct that like it is in some other leagues around the world where you can chop and change and move guys on really easily. And here, you know, with the cap limitations and the spending limitations, you need to hit on everything and get some luck, too, when it comes to the injury side of things. You look at 2020 and 2022 for Atlanta United, in my opinion, two years of injuries wrecked with Josephs in 2020. In 2020, uh, along with the COVID year of just general chaos, and the 2022 where, I mean, Gonzalo Pineda was putting lineups together with paper clips and duct tape because of all the injuries. The injury list with losing Brad Gazan and losing Miles Robinson to Achilles injuries. Um, Joseph still not 100%, all those kinds of things. That's what happens when you don't get lucky and when you don't nail every single signing in this league. Yeah, very true. Let me go back to, of course, Gonzalo Pineda. Um, you know, obviously, like we already said, um, you know, Tata Martino, when he came in, put Atlanta United on the map. There's been question marks with the coaching, certain hires that have worked well but in some ways did not, and then another coaching hire that did not go the way it should have gone. And now you have Gonzalo Pineda, who's come in, uh, I wouldn't say – rough around the edges, but do you think now he's he's settled in very nicely and has gotten Atlanta United back on track? Yeah, I mean, look at Gonzalo's trajectory, and I feel like it's easy to forget this stuff because of the hyperbole that at times surrounds Atlanta United, and that can be good and bad, you know? There was a lot of hype when the team came in, and what you saw in the first three years, amazing stuff. There's been a lot of hyperbole on the negative side as well. And, and look, that comes from just the nature of the business, but it also comes from expectations that are set with immediate success. It also comes from that's what get clicks these days, you know? It's easier to be negative and get attention than it is to be positive. Gonzalo came in, and in 2021, when he took over the team, from the time he took over to the end of that season, it was Atlanta United, it was New England, and it was Vancouver that were the three best teams in the league. 2022, like I said, you started really well. It was actually here in D.C. where Atlanta will play on Wednesday. That was the game where it started to have issues because of injuries. They were 3-1-1 one, one at that point, and that game was a win. And then you started to lose people. You lost Osvaldo Alonso in that game. You lost Joseph Martinez for an extended period of time after that game. You lost Mateo Sosetsu. 
for a long period of time. Not long after that, it was Brad Kazan. Not long after that, it was Miles Robinson. 2022, because of all the injuries, I mean, that's, that's a lot right there that I just mentioned. That's not even all of them. That's a year that you can't put a lot of stock into, and they were competing to the end for a playoff spot. They didn't get it. This year, you've had the, the roster changes that have gotten you to this point where I think you're ahead of schedule. Honestly, I, I thought this was a team that with where you were looking in the summer window and having to move players out to add the pieces you want, Sometimes that can take a little bit of time for the chemistry to gel. I thought you'd see a team that was pretty similar to what we've seen so far this season, competitive, at times really good, especially in the attack, but at times defensively, some question marks. And they'd be in that fifth, sixth, seventh chase in the East. As it's coming together, I think they have more potential to do more this year than I thought initially at the beginning of the window because it is hitting the ground running faster and then you want to keep as much of it together for next year as you possibly can. And Gonzalo's in a place now with the roster that he has. He has all the pieces that he needs. He's got depth. He's got weapons off the bench. He's got the ability to choose. He's got the ability to create competition within the squad. And now he's had a consistent group to work with for a period of time that he really hasn't had since the end of 2021. And when you play in this manner of positional play, possession-based style, You've got to have consistency, and if you don't, it's really difficult to get the performances that you want out of the group. Absolutely. Uh, real quick before I let you go, Jason, you know, Arthur Blank donating, I believe it was $50 million to U.S. soccer to not only build a new national team training center in downtown Atlanta, but that's going to allow U.S. soccer to move out, move out of Chicago and uh, move all their operations to downtown Atlanta. What does that mean for the city of Atlanta to have basically uh, the center of the American soccer universe now in their backyard? Yeah, it's going to upset some people when Atlanta calls itself Soccer City USA, but it kind of is now, isn't it? I mean, with, with everything happening when it comes to uh, World Cup coming to town, Copa America hopefully coming to town next year, maybe World Club Cup, maybe Women's World Cup in 27, um, U.S. soccer headquarters and this new training facility, it is that in a lot of ways. And it's a, it's a very cool thing. It's something as, as I've dug into the history of soccer in Atlanta, kind of goes back to the, the beginning of the professional game in the Atlanta area with the Atlanta Chiefs and the, the kind of mission statement that Dick Cecil and Bill Bartholomew and Phil Wujnum set out at that time in 
national team programs, the cerebral palsy national team, um, the uh, power soccer national team, the national teams that need that support. And also there's a component to growing the game, and I'm sure this will happen nationwide, not just in the Atlanta area, but you're going to see it radiate from Atlanta. And it's, it's something that has to happen. And, you know, we're really lucky being involved with Atlanta United and then seeing it firsthand the effect that Arthur's ownership and his, I think, just mentality and how he conducts his business has benefited the game. If you put a list of most influential people in American soccer over the last 10 years, Arthur Blank's name should be at the top of it. And if it's not, I'm going to have a serious <laughs> debate with whoever puts that list together. He has been uh, an absolute change agent, change agent when it comes to how soccer can be done, how professional soccer can be done, but also how it can benefit communities and and underserved communities and grow the game. And I think that's you know just this is just an extension of who Arthur Blank is and what he's done for the game, and it might have some of the biggest implications of everything that he's done so far. That's Jason Longshore, 92.9 FM, The Game, Atlanta United radio analyst, joining me tonight. Uh, Jason, thank you as always. Talk to you next time, and have a good night, my friend. We'll catch up again soon. Thank you. And once again, Jason Longshore from 92.9 FM, The Game, in Atlanta, Georgia, the Atlanta United radio analyst, talking about the Atlanta United and what they have done so far uh, for this season. And as we now move on to uh, the New York Red Bull segment, before I do, I just want to go quickly, of course, sporting Lexington SC in USL League One. Um, you know, some big news uh, came up. Sam Stockley, who uh, was both head coach and sporting director, uh, rele- relinquishing his head coaching duties will remain as the sporting director of the club. Uh, Nacho Novo will now be the head coach for the rest of the season, and it looks like uh, going into the future uh, for next year and the years uh, beyond that. So, you know, Sam Stockley, congratulations to him for at least uh, pushing forward the club at the start of their uh, USL League One existence. And uh, obviously, you know, that that's a big thing for him to step down as uh, head coach as well. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, he's done a lot of good things uh, with the club, being, of course, a part of U.S. soccer as a coach. Of course, he came over, former uh, captain of Port Vale in England. So just wonderful to uh, say that, you know, he's – I think, you know, look, I'm never going to go against Mr. Stockley. Sam's a good guy, been on my show many, many times. Uh, love to have him back on again, so hopefully talk about it, and uh, we'll see what happens going down the road. Other than that, uh, good luck to him just as sporting director of the club. And uh, we'll talk more about Sam, hopefully, uh, on this show when we get that opportunity. But now it's time to talk about the Red Bulls match at Stadium. It was a scoreless draw 
against New York City FC. What can you say about that? Yuck. Blech. Ugh. Blech. Blech. Ugh. Terrible. Both New York City clubs and MLS are terrible. Because why? Forget about the goals that were not scored. Both teams are below the playoff line. Soccer in Major League Soccer in the New York City area, the tri-state area, are just absolutely putrid, horrible, disgusting. All you can say, unfortunately, is that it's just not good. And yes, the Hudson River Derby now has a brand new trophy. It is the torch. It's a replica of the torch that is held by Lady Liberty in the New York Harbor in the southern end of Manhattan. Keaton Park subbing out due to injury. And of course, unfortunately, Troy Lestane who had to serve his one-match suspension due to the third yellow card he received in his technical area in Philadelphia. And, of course, the ridiculous yellow cards that Sean Nealis got in that same match against the Philadelphia Union. Um, All you can really say is that the Hudson River Derby is not what it once was. Both sides are terrible. Both sides were disgusting. And nothing was being done. Even though the Red Bulls do have six matches remaining, three at home, three on the road, on their schedule, I think the real question is, is there enough to earn points to get over the playoff line? And I'll be honest, I don't think so. I think they will be out of the playoffs when the regular season comes to a close in the middle of October. Why? It's just not enough. Not enough on the offensive end. They're defending, even though at times they're giving up silly goals. They're bringing the ball up. But when they get inside the area, there's just not enough to score let alone score a goal. They're just not scoring goals. And this is a big problem. So all I can tell you guys is this. If they can finish off on a positive note and be ready for next year, that's all you can really hope for. I know you probably want to hear more. You want to hear, well, there should be a way. In reality, I don't think there's going to be a way. I think... This long playoff qualification record is going to end in 2023. Let's just be honest about it. If anything positive does happen this year with whatever remaining games are left, if they do get a good bunch of wins, then you know what? That's fine. At least they get ready for next year and – they'll make some moves that they feel will be important to move on from basically to move on 
from what we have seen so far this year. A big mess that sadly got too big for their britches and just not enough to go out there and do some damage. Coaching and is a problem. I think Troy Lesane has done as much as he could. I don't know if he will be retained. I don't know if he will still be head coach of this club. There's still some question marks here. Um, obviously, we all know that return of information article in NewJersey.com about them spending on the roster for next year. We don't know who they're going to get. We don't know who's going to be available for this Red Bulls team. But all we can do is wait and see, and all we can do is hope that they get the proper people to cover, or not so much cover, but to join this club and go out and finally bring back people to put butts in the seats and to just finally get things in control. Because once again, there are problems, folks, big problems. I wish it wasn't the case, but right now it is. So that's all we can say, and that's all we can do. Just finish up, finish off the string, and just get ready for next year. If there happens to be a miracle, and if it does happen, they're still going to get bounced out of the first round. So that's all I can say about that. So let's see what happens moving forward. Uh, the only positive at the moment, winning the Hudson River Derby on four points to one in the regular season. And hopefully they can get back on track next year and they can finally make the positive changes that they need to make to get everything back on track. I want to thank my guests tonight. I want to thank Patrick Quinn, my Colorado Rapids reporter, and I also want to thank Jason Longshore from 92.9 FM, The Game, Atlanta United radio analyst. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Next week, it's an Open Cup week across America. The championship final. The preview for the final. Preview for the second round amateur qualification matches on next weekend. Open Cup final championship review show. Once again, my name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for listening to me tonight. And as always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Take care so long and bye-bye for now.